Let us join together in prayer. Loving God, as we begin our Holy Week journey, open our eyes and our hearts for what you have for us this day and this week. Amen. For seven weeks, we've been watching the horrific news on Ukraine. Seven weeks of witnessing the continual exodus of people who are fleeing their homes as their children cling to them. It's hard to watch adult children patiently attempting to move their slow walking elders to safety with the knowledge that bombs could drop any time. For seven weeks we've been witness as we have watched neighborhoods turn to rubble. Maybe it has been the fear around Putin and whether he will succumb to using nuclear weapons that caused me to remember. This week's text of Jesus entering Jerusalem has reminded me of an event that I participated in years ago in Northern California. There was an ecumenical march that took place on Good Friday in front of the Livermore Laboratories. It was my first public stand against the building of nuclear weapons. The march was designed around the 14 stations of the cross. It was a reenactment of the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem where he was ultimately crucified. At each station, the marchers were to stop and reflect on a portion of the biblical story or a piece of church tradition. I was part of the group that was leading number six station of the cross. We arrived early in order to get prepared and get acquainted with our site. And I remember being shocked at the size of the laboratories, but my stomach did a flip when we turned the last corner and the police officers came into view. Not one or two of them on the corner to make sure that the traffic flowed freely, but there were officers five abreast, six deep, down the middle of the street wearing full riot gear. The laboratory's own security was perched behind the chain link fence and up on the roof of the laboratory. They were filming the crowd. In the ecumenical gathering, there was a varied assortment of religious communities represented, priests, nuns, pastors, lay people, students, seniors, babies in strollers, children playing along the way. There were those in the Good Friday March that became very nervous when the newspaper reporters came through the lines seeking names, seeking stories. And there was a running debate that took place near me as to the wisdom or the foolishness of giving one's name. I suspect that in Jesus' march, there were those who were still ardent followers of John the Baptist and weren't ready to be totally behind Jesus, 
especially if it was perceived to be dangerous to be his follower. Not everyone who started out with Jesus made it all the way to Jerusalem. It's risky to take a stand. It's risky to go public with one's belief, particularly in the presence of those who hold the power and believe differently. In a society that savored and relished the excitement of a returning, conquering hero on the stately Arabian steed or being carried in an ornate chariot drawn by a pair of matched stallions, those of Jesus' day knew the unwritten rules of a royal parade. And I suspect many of them left the burdens of working long hours and barely scraping by in life in order to cling to the hope of what this march represented. For just a short period of time, they allowed themselves to forget the drudgery of the constant strain of keeping food on the table. The energy of the cries of Hosanna, which translated was a plea to save us now, created an altered state of consciousness. It didn't matter that the king wasn't on a stallion, but on a homely, lowly donkey, for they knew the game plan. As Jesus neared the Mount of Olives, the people's joy could no longer be contained. The energy of the crowd escalated and they began yanking off their coats and jackets and waving them in the air like pom-poms. Those who didn't sling their coats used the traditional branches to wave their, their fondness, their desire, their welcome to this royal figure. In the Asian tradition, they rushed to spread their coats on the road, creating a royal carpet to honor the new king. They were convinced that they were in the right place at the right time to watch history unfold. And as Jesus moved along the road past Herod's palace, the Roman fortress of Antonia, the high priest's residence, and the grandeur of the temple, he was keenly aware that all of those structures, all of those systems were against him. On the opposite side of the city was another procession. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and all his key leadership came in with the imperial cavalry and soldiers. The two contrasting processions embody the conflict of the week that led to Jesus' crucifixion. Pilate headed up the military procession that proclaimed and demonstrated the Roman imperial power and theology. The Roman armor bearers were there to quell any signs of uprising that might occur within the city with all those gathered to celebrate Passover. It was a show of power, 
and a reminder of just who was in charge. It was an intimidating scene with the horses, foot soldiers, creaking leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, and with the sun bouncing off the golden eagles mounted on poles that were carried in the military parade. The sound of the marching feet as the dust swirled up around the horses as they pranced through the streets became the backdrop to the contrasting parade on the other side of the city. The Imperial Parade reminded folks to keep their displeasure buried. They were reminded of the reality of what would happen to them if they confronted the evil systems of the day. It was a reminder to swallow their rage and accept their lack of freedom. Up until this day, Jesus' identity had only been hinted at or obscurely indicated or revealed to a chosen few. But today, this march makes a very loud statement. The reality was nobody could fathom that the kingdom could be anything except a typical hierarchical structure where Jesus would reign. The bottom line was they just didn't get it. They were welcoming the wrong Jesus. They had created an illusion of a king that would fit the old system. Even if they knew things weren't good, they were at least known and everyone knew what the rules were. Jesus taught servanthood, which wasn't popular then and it isn't now. Even some of his disciples who had witnessed his miracles and who could quote his truths had gotten caught up in this day of illusion. They desperately wanted to be considered the entourage of a real king. And let's face it, believing that one has an inside track to a new kingdom is pretty heady stuff. I wonder how many of those folks were part of the crowd to Jerusalem still acknowledge having been his disciples a few days later, after Jesus' arrest, after his conviction, after his crucifixion. How many of them were still showing their grandchildren their garments with the hoof prints that had been spread before the new king? How many went into silence and just blocked the day out altogether? How many could not cope with feeling betrayed and abandoned? The church's title for this event is the Triumphant March. However, it is not the pinnacle, but it is a part of the process. It is not designed to bring in a new royal family and new systems, but it is a march that is chosen for its liberating qualities. This is the tough part of Palm Sunday. If we put ourselves into the story, we can identify with the folks of our text. Don't we as a community long to have the disordered parts of our personal and corporate lives fixed? 
isn't there a universal desire, especially during this Ukrainian war, to be rescued from the power and oppression of others? How do we respond to someone who is willing to go into that Jerusalem place and respond and speak the truth, even if it isn't what people want to hear? When our youngest son, Matt, was four years old, we were living in Eugene, and Matt fell out of our treehouse and broke his femur. He spent a week in the hospital in traction, and then was put in a full body cast for another six weeks. When the great day finally arrived for him to be set free, I couldn't wait for him to get his cast off and for our family to get back to normal living. However, when we arrived at Dr. Singer's office, he took me aside and he said, Mrs. Hoagie, I want you to know that removing a cast on a young child can be a traumatic transition. I want you to let Matt remain in the open cast as long as he desires until he is ready to begin to move out of it. So I watched as Tony, the cast room technician, split the cast in two. The top half was removed. And then Matt was put on a gurney and wheeled out to our car, sort of a mat on the half shell. <laughs> we loaded him into the back seat, drove home, carried him into the house, placed him on his now very familiar couch, handed him his trusty blue blanket, and began the wait. And I worked feverishly in the kitchen, attempting to reduce my stress. I wanted the transition to happen quickly. And there were some tense moments as the minutes moved into hours. And several hours later, he did start to move out of the cast, and we all slowly resumed life as we had known it. For me, there was a lesson in grace. The triumphant march is the process of learning to step out of the confines and comforts of our bondage in order to achieve growth and to be all that we are called by God to be. There is a big part of me that would like it to be much easier than it is. I'd like to Google a website and watch a guaranteed outcome before I take the steps. The paradox of the Christian faith is that we are required to surrender ourselves. We're asked to live out the surrendering process through a relationship with the divine. Although we are not asked to leave our intellect behind, we're asked to come as children to be received into the kingdom of God, the kinship of God. We're asked to trust, not an easy task of the original team of disciples and not easy for us. If we don't choose to break out of our protective shells, whatever they might be, we are stuck in our shoulds and oughts, which make up the very laws that Jesus came to enable us to break through to liberation. 
we are then invited to walk with others. Being with someone in the dark night of the soul isn't about fixing, it's about being a presence. It's about listening through the moans, through the groans. However, just as the breaking out of the cast has risk, so the march has risks. When one goes against the established order, one faces barriers. There is no guarantee of status if one chooses to work outside of the cultural norms. To break out of our caste, we no longer have an excuse for our limited life. We have to find out who we are designed by God to be. And in order to do that, we have to learn to listen to God. And it's out of listening that we can determine our actions. It is in the process of seeking God that we ultimately find ourselves. Our hope for liberation is to see ourselves as God sees us. Our hope for liberation is to trust the fact that God believes in us and wants more for us than we want for ourselves. Holy Week is not just about remembering Jesus' journey. It is also our journey. As poet Mary Oliver puts it, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. The march is towards the reign of God within. The march is the ultimate in peacemaking. The march is available to all humankind. The march towards the way of the authentic Jesus provides authentic hope. May it be so. Amen.